This is Coda Radio, episode 502 for January 23rd, 2023. Hello, friend, and welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us, sounding like the cleaning product salesman that he is, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Well, that's right. Soon it will all be clean. Coder 502. Clean up that messy keyboard. Give it a quick spray with Coder 502. Right? Doesn't it just sell itself? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we got to sell something, man, because we got to we got to start making some money. Because I have some HomePods to buy. I don't yes, know if you, you saw. Yes, you do. Yes, it's back, baby. It's back. Can you believe it? Can you believe they brought back the big HomePod? I I mean, why'd they even kill it in the first place? Yeah, why'd they kill it in the first? It's you know, it's a boring product, and that's exactly what you want it to be. Like it's. It's a speaker. It does Apple things. Yeah, yeah. You can pair two of them, although you can't cross the generation, so now you have some choices to make. I know, dude. So Apple. So Apple. And as you can imagine, I've been getting this link all week because, you know, of course I've become the HomePod guy. Yeah, so they've added a temperature sensor, a humidity sensor. I think they removed a couple of the tweeters, and they put a dome on the top of it similar to the Mini that lights up with the Siri colors that really does nothing. Just costs more. Yeah, I, but they actually they also knocked fifty bucks off the price, so now it starts at three hundred and fifty dollars instead of four hundred. Um, oh, I guess no, it's two ninety nine. I'm sorry, the original was three fifty. Okay, I don't really, you know, I I mentioned the price just so we mention it, but I think you probably agree with me. These are actually a great deal, even at four hundred dollars, if you compare them to the thousand dollar speakers that they're competing with, right? Yeah, and I'm talking one speaker is a thousand dollars and you don't generally want a mono sound system no so at, at 299 these are actually a really great deal if you are so deep in the app, apple ecosystem that you know you've got every steve jobs biography and movie that exists like if you're that person these are great for you or if you're chris well i loved the old version so much that when apple announced they were killing it in a very unusual way that they don't normally do i bought one I bought another one and I still have it in the box. It's like, you know, break seal in case of emergency. Like if one of my other HomePods shorts out a year down, two down the road, I wanted to have a fresh sealed HomePod ready to go. So I still have an unopened version from the last batch. (laughs) I just love that you have emergency HomePods. That's how much I like these. Yeah, that's that's it. And it's, it's hard to wrap your head around it because it just looks like such a dumb device. In the abstract. And now coming at it from a, you know, I'm an Android user now, Mike. Oh, God. I use Android now. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're really, these are the most annoying speakers in the world. They really, this is what slowed my roll and probably why I won't be buying a Gen 2, is if you're just even a little bit adjacent to the Apple ecosystem, these HomePods are essentially useless. Unless you just want to invoke everything via the HomePod with Siri and, you know, play everything locally. But if you want to send to it any kind of capacity, you're screwed. It's a real shame because you kind of basically fall back to Bluetooth in Android land. Which is garbage. Totes garbage. And none of them sound as good as the HomePod. Uh, however, Home Assistant can act as an intermediary. So folks like me that are masochistic and have lots of big Home Assistant setups actually have workarounds. You can you can bridge that gap. So although I'm really glad to see it's back. I don't really understand why they killed it. Seems like they could have just kept that one going. Here's what I think happened, Mike. My theory is, is when the HomePod hit... 
the original HomePod hit, it was peak transition to video displays for all of these assistants. The Google Nest Hub had shipped. The Alexa with several different screen options had shipped. And it seemed clearly that Apple's slower development style, their five years in the making to get the speaker out into the market, they started working on the HomePod before the Echo product line existed. And they didn't manage to ship it until we had video Echoes. And I think Apple realized, oh, crap, we shipped an audio-only device that's too expensive, isn't a very good assistant, and doesn't have a screen, so we can't show you your photos. And then they killed it, <laughs> and they saw the backlash. And additionally, the home assistant little, or the little, you know, smart tubes, the lady tube market, has started to die. I mean, we've seen the headlines that both Amazon and Google have done layoffs in those divisions. The hardware sales are in the can, and it turns out people do want speaker quality. And that the assistant stuff is actually secondary. And that they actually got it right the first time. Yeah, it turns out that like people putting these things in their kitchen were doing like two things, right? Listening to music and setting timers. Yeah. Both of which are just like fine for a regular home pod or to be honest, like an iPad, right? Right. It, I mean it's it's nice. It's nice to have a screen. Yeah, yeah. sure. Well, and the screen is like <laughs> I don't know. I also, you know, the, the tech lash a little bit because the screen was by who Amazon and then one by Facebook. Not just folks I generally want listening into like various, you know, ho household domestic stuff, right? Like, for instance, why didn't my son wash his hands? I don't know, but he sure didn't, right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I will say though, a swing and a miss, I think, and I think, I don't know, this is just my bias, but I think if Apple was run by real geeks, they would have recognized this already. Uh, maybe CFED could get up there and champion this idea. Maybe. The one thing, the one thing the home, the, the Google Home Nest frickin' nails is it is the best dang photo display I have ever seen because it's got your entire Google Photos and then it knows faces, so it knows who to match up and it understands how to properly display a four by three picture on a 16 by nine. And that is That's find true. two of the same person and put them side by side on the display. And it just cycles through your favorites elegantly. And as you upload new photos and you mark them favorite, they just magically show up. It's the number one thing I miss about using Google photos. And all Apple would have to do is take, you know, the iPad mini display, put a tiny, you know, watch Apple watch SOC style system in there that connects to your iCloud photos and just rotates through your favorites using all of the same information it already has about people and locations and all that stuff. And it's just a huge miss because they have all of the tech, literally. They really do. They have all the pieces. They could put Siri in that thing and they could put a speaker in that thing and they've got themselves probably the best home digital photo frame ever created. And, you know, they could call it the Photopod or whatever and people would snap it up. It's just such a miss. But anyways, it, it is a miss. It's a strange choice. Who am I to talk? Because, man, I don't even know how email works. Apparently, I am so sorry, everybody. I screwed up so bad. So, so bad. It's so embarrassing. You'd think I'd never use computers before. But, you know, I didn't catch it at first until we got some really hard hitting emails this week. And I realized that email wasn't in my inbox, but it was in Mike's inbox. And that was weird. I wouldn't have not if you. If you hadn't replied this week to that, I wouldn't have even seen it. Wow. Google has started, and it may be happening to you too, because I think it's platform-wide, has started auto-marking the emails from Fireside as spam. So when you use the contact form, Google has been labeling those as spam. 
And I failed to appreciate the fact that when you search your Gmail inbox, it doesn't search your spam folder by default. Forgot that little fact. So sorry, everybody. I missed your 500 emails. Sorry about that. Sorry, I've been missing your emails since about mid-December, actually. (laughs) But what the reason why I didn't catch it is, A, I've been wide out busy since mid-December. But B, some of the emails were getting through. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought we were just getting, you know, the holidays. Maybe I just thought we were getting less email. Right. Uh, But I think what's happened is all of those ridiculous, crappy marketing pitches that we've been getting, I think they triggered Google spam detection. Mm. And so then it just turned against all the fireside emails. I could see that. That's got to be what happened. Yeah, because, yeah, we've been getting we've been getting a lot of those recently. Yeah, this I just got one yesterday. Thank you, by the way, to our members for letting me just tell this guy to go piss off. Uh, I got an email yesterday from a guy who wants to set up a real juicy little little action for podcasters to make a little buck sending everybody to like a jobs board that they're setting up, you know, get a little cut of everybody's, you know, unemployment situation, really kind of just this whole operation they're trying to get going. That's sweet. Oh, it just leaves you kind of with a dirty taste in your mouth. And there's just that kind of stuff coming in on those emails all the time. So it's possible. But, you know, what's weird is those aren't the email addresses in the RSS feed. So they're not generally the ones from the automated ones. Those are from the emails that people are actually going to the page and sending. So, yeah, they're spam, but the people are actually filling out the form and sending it. So uh, it's a it's a great area, but I'll be checking the spam filter more often. Why don't we get to some of those emails? Because I, I feel bad. And we got one from our uh, friendly neighborhood hacker, Voidbyte. He wrote into the show skis and said the discussion of AI lawsuits like those of Microsoft and Stable Diffusion remind me of the All the Music LLC and how they managed to copyright all the melodies by generating MIDI files of every single possible melody ever. While ChatGPT could not answer how one could generate all possible algorithms, it was nice enough to generate an answer for the following prompt for me. Write a Python function that creates all possible instruction combinations given a list of assembly instructions. The generated response is pretty close to what I would have come up with to get all the possible instruction combinations. If it is possible to use this sort of algorithm to find all possible instruction combinations on every single CPU architecture, including undocumented instructions that have been uncovered by the Sifter tool, you would think that it would be enough to never have a single algorithm lawsuit ever again. I would love for the original authors of these works to be compensated for their time and contributions for these AI systems. These are just very smart parrots after all. She says, while I'd love for the original authors to be compensated for their work, maybe we'll see a future where we have either another Napster moment where unfettered use of AI makes users legally liable instead of the AI tool makers, and we'll eventually then have a marketplace of solutions like iTunes or a more generalized version of the Unity Asset Store to hopefully pay developers fairly for their hard work. What do you think, Mike? Could that be possible with something like ChatGPT that has essentially trillions of data points? Could you... Do you think they could even abstract it out to the individual source materials? Because, I mean, my understanding of how this type of stuff works is it's it, it it's hard to even say how much of one data source was weighed in the overall end result. So it could be like take you know a data point from Ars Technica is weighed ten percent, and a data point from The Verge is weighed eight percent. Do you cite both of those when you weighed something forty five percent? You know, it seems really tricky to solve. It seems, it, it, yeah, that does seem almost like an impossible task. But I, I would even go maybe a step further and say, I'm not even sure the business incentives of the companies making these things are necessarily aligned with that either. Were you able to do it, which I'm not super uh, sure about. 
So, you know, one of the nice things of being able to like throw your hands up and say, oh, it's a black box is that you can kind of diffuse responsibility, right? You can't blame the robot kind of thing. I, I don't know. Presumably, if you could reverse engineer and go back and find your sources, then I feel like that could potentially increase some sort of liability. We are not lawyers. We don't even play one on the internet. I wonder if uh, if you could maybe distill out some of the top influences and at least cite those and credit those, and then those could you know be licensed. Like you know, I, I wonder. I wonder. It seems like whoever solves the legality issues around these data sets is probably going to have a massive market advantage. It's probably going to require a bunch of rich deep pockets coming together to pay off a bunch of rights holders or some some sort of licensing model, and then that company will be the one that has access to this huge data set, and then they will build their products around this and essentially have a regulation-enforced monopoly on this artificial intelligence solution. I mean, so Microsoft, right? Yeah. Yeah, Microsoft. Yeah. Seems like they're well-positioned, or, or getting there at least, to... Uh... Yeah. And I would think that the state would be happy to allow it since they know they could probably get nice fat contracts with Microsoft and get access to the technology platform. And through this system of trying to protect intellectual property so people can make a living, we will create monopolies for artificial intelligence. Yeah, I buy that. <laughs> okay, moving right along. If you have thoughts out there, coder.show slash contact or send a boost in them. I'm, I'm watching. Uh, so Matt needs a headspace adjustment. Maybe we all do now. He says, hey, guys. I love the show. I'm coming up with I'm coming up on my fifth year as a software developer, and I'm pretty happy where I am career-wise. However, I feel like I don't have the knowledge around the tools I use, and I don't feel as confident as I think I should be. I know I should just bite the bullet and focus on learning, but it's hard when I'm not particularly passionate about my organization's tooling. Do you guys have any advice on breaking out of that headspace? Also, congrats on 500 episodes. Well, thank you on the yep, thank you on the five hundred. I mean, it's it's tough, right? Without knowing what the tooling is, you know, it's just part of the job at this point. Though tools come and go, organizations transition. You'll probably transition organizations. If anything, I don't know what these tools are that you're talking about, but possibly just kind of getting over it a little bit and embracing this. I'm assuming pretty irritating tooling. Well, it'd be an asset later in life, right? It's like, you know, doing pre-arc Objective-C is for me because every once in a while, that weird, what will become esoteric knowledge might, you know, be a be a value, right? Be a, a, a skill you can leverage. Yeah, you might be the guy that knows that thing that just happens to solve the problem. And then, you know, you're, you're not going to be stuck there forever. You're going to be doing other stuff. And I got to tell you, as a different tooling comes out, you're probably going to find that what you think is great today in 10 years, it's, it's like, wow, I can't believe I used to do it that way. I, I'll give you a perfect example. I lean a lot on VS Code's uh, advanced Python stuff. And I used to just use TextMate all the time. But like basic, you know, basic IntelliSense. I don't think I would really want to go back to that, given how just awesome PyLance, the, uh, the VS Code Python thing is. I think I was in this spot about 15, 16 years ago. I was feeling like good job, you know, good, good career path, good pay, good benefits Could probably keep doing it for a while, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I started exploring podcasting and started kind of doing what I, what I thought. And I think this still works is I wanted something that I could find fulfillment for that wasn't associated to the job. And I think as the show goes on today, you'll 
this lesson is going to be underscored several times. I wanted something that was unrelated to whatever I did for work. And I never started it as the like, oh, I want to do this for a living. I want to stop doing IT and I want to start doing podcasting full time. I wasn't even didn't even consider that a possibility because I used the IT stuff to pay for the podcasting. So how was that ever going to happen? But I just wanted to have some fun. And I think, you know, you could take that, Matt, as far as you want. You could maybe eventually develop into something that becomes a new career and kind of, you know, you get your time in and you now have yourself a new path. Or it just becomes a source of fulfillment that is not related to your job. And either way, I think the solution there is find something to get some wins in, you know, like a small project around the house, something you that's physical that you can see that the results are tangible immediately, whatever that might be in your life, go do that for a little bit, get that W under your belt and then go set up a side hobby and use that momentum to get that side hobby going and start getting fulfillment from that. Maybe it's social. Maybe it's a social thing you're doing. Maybe it's a project. But when we work in the digital space, as much as we all do, I think we forget how gratifying a win can be that you can tangibly see, hold, etc. It's unbelievable. Um, and maybe it's something I didn't quite appreciate when I was younger, but you know, like something around the house or something, you know what I mean? You see it and you're like, oh yeah, look at that. I, I started working on that today and now I have this thing and it's right here. It's so good. So I think that can help too, Matt. And that can just help kind of like pop you in a good headspace. And then you can start thinking creatively about what you want to do. But what happens for me, at least as I get down into the, you know, the bogs and uh, heads down and I kind of get into problem solving mode and I don't get into creation mode. And it's a real problem for me. And uh, you might be suffering from that too. All right. Then our last bit of feedback, sort of, before we get into the rest of the show, Steve Ovens at Linux Ovens tweets into us at Coda Radio Show. One thing I don't remember you guys ever talking about is metrics and tracing. Might be interesting to discuss open telemetry in Python, for example, and why or why you wouldn't use it. Just a thought from a hashtag JBOG. Metrics has come up kind of sprinkled in the conversation over the years. Do we have enough to make a whole segment out of it, or do you have just kind of a hot take? Uh, you know, I think we could do a segment at some point. It's yeah, see, it's a lot. A lot of it depends on what you, we mean by metrics and tracing, right? If we mean metrics like user metrics, or you know, how much memory is server taking, well, tail scale is weirdly enough a nice first step in that direction, right? Because if you're starting from zero, at least now you like can see when your servers are up and easily get to them from strange remote locations. And a reminder: it's not just servers, right? I use them a lot uh, on Raspberry Pis that are in the field doing various uh, kind of automationy things. I love it. I know. I know. I mean, they are, yes, a sponsor. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And that's a nice way to just kind of have access to your systems. There's so many, when it comes to like metrics too, you have system metrics, you have application level metrics, you have network metrics, like you can really go so deep on this. And then like, you know, in terms of a, you even have Google analytics type of metrics, like there's so many layers to it. Oh, what I wonder is what's useful to have. And that's got to be application and use case specific, right? But I wonder if there's a generalized way to come to consensus on that. I don't know. I think it's going to be, it, it comes down to company culture, comes down to application use case, uh, you know, like a, an Instapaper and, a, and a, a, tw a Twitter app, well, the Twitter app might have one use case for a set of analytics, but an enterprise application that's just creating a bare bones MVP for users to get access to information while they're on the floor of a warehouse, that probably has a different set of metrics requirements too. Yeah. And, and you might care. I mean, 
you know, metrics has a whole other meaning, especially towards the businessy side of things where your metrics might be like, well, how often does the user click the in-app purchase thing and then like bounce off the page, right? That's a whole another beast of what we mean. Yeah, I think we should talk about it one day. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I'm uh, maybe a little behind the curve here because I, I understand intellectually a lot of the value, but it's so very easy to kind of cut that when time and budgets are, you know, applying their hard pressure. Yeah, I, I also, on my end, it's so easy to slide into something creepy. You know, like Steve mentioned a couple of good ones, but um, usually those things get creepy. So, you know, but there are ways to do it right. But all right, well, that bun's in the oven. We'll be thinking about that. Tailscale.com slash coder. That's where you go to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices. Free. Not a limited time trial. You get it. Tailscale.com slash coder. And it's a great way to support the show. Tailscale is a simple, secure mesh VPN built on top of WireGuard. It gets on any of your devices in seconds. iPad, Raspberry Pi, VM, Windows Box. It doesn't matter. Bring them all into one flat mesh network that you control. You can grant ACL privileges for other folks. And it's beautifully mesh and flat. And the reason why I say that is you can have a machine behind double carrier grade NAT and you can be on your cell phone and you like, you know, you know, like just way deep inside the network and you can be talking to a machine that's behind your Comcast modem or whatever it is on in another part of the world. Like it's all transparent. And you're like, Chris, that just sounds like a VPN, son. And I'm like, oh, you're so adorable in your horse and buggy. Let me tell you about this automobile I found. That's what I'm doing right now. Right. I don't mean it disrespectfully, but you're like, I got a good horse. And I got a good buggy and I just put new wheels on it, Chris. It's going real good. And I'm like, yeah, that's adorable. Let me tell you about my Model T. This Model T is great. And that's the conversation we're having right now. That's the that's the game changer that Tailscale is. And then they layer in tools that just make so much sense and just augment the experience. For an example, Tailscale SSH allows you to establish an SSH connection between your devices in your Tailscale network as authorized by your Tailscale access controls without having to manage all the SSH keys between your machines. It authenticates using your WireGuard connection. You get SSH access that way. Tailscale Send, beautiful airdrop-like tool for all your devices on your Tailscale network. Your Linux box, your Android box, your Windows box, your Mac, your VPS, your VM. I don't care what you're doing. I even have it on my home assistant as a plugin. It's the best, you guys. No more inbound firewall rules on any of my networks. It's that wonderful. And I knew WireGuard would bring us to this beautiful, beautiful future, but we needed the tooling like Tailscale to make it truly accessible, deployable, and usable by everyone. Friends, family, even my kids are on Tailscale. It's that good, it's that easy, and it's that reliable. So go try it for yourself for free for up to 20 machines and see how a VPN should work. It's not just a VPN. It's a mesh network. It's like, it's like bringing your own decentralized internet with you. Try it out today. Support the show and get it for free for up to 20 devices when you go to tailscale.com slash coder. You are gonna love it. Tailscale.com slash coder. Well, it sort of feels like uh, the layoffs are hitting home this week. Here's, here's how fast this is developing. When I first bookmarked this story for this week's episode, there had been 600,000 tech layoffs since the beginning of the year. Later on, CNBC had to update their headline. And then to this morning, they have to update it once more to now uh, 700,000 layoffs. It's unbelievable, the number. I don't know if CNBC's number is accurate. There's several sets of numbers now. But what we do know is that Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, 
uh, also Spotify today since last, this is all just since last week's episode <laughs> have announced massive, massive numbers. And it really feels like it's hitting home. Uh, Apple's been the most quiet, but they seem to be doing a lot of the layoffs in the retail channel. And Microsoft did some layoffs in a lot of their Xbox and gaming division. And we got a really, we got an email. This is the email that made me realize I've been missing my emails. Uh, Fired in Seattle wrote into the show and they said, hey, Mike and Chris, I can't believe I ever doubted you. I'm fuming right now. After eight years of Microsoft, I was laid off today. When you first said layoffs were coming, I brushed it off and thought, not me, not my team. But here I am, jobless, feeling like a complete fool. I put years of my life into my work at Microsoft. And for what? So they can pump $10 billion into open AI and turn around and lay off people from the gaming divisions? It's a complete kick in the teeth. And don't even get me started on the acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Nearly $70 billion, are you kidding me? But yet here I am getting the boot. It makes absolutely no sense. I'm still trying to figure out what my next move will be. But let me tell you, it's a bitter pill to swallow when the company you've devoted so much to can't even show you the same loyalty in return. Make it make sense, guys. Fired in Seattle. Man. That's rough, man. That's, that's a tough... That's, oof, that's rough. I feel for you. I feel for... You know, really, all these guys. This is, I don't know, right? I mean, the 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 point about the Activision Blizzard merger—that's just brutal. A lot of the layoffs they did were in the gaming division, and then they're bringing in Activision. So they laid off about ten thousand folks, which is really more like twelve thousand. When they say ten thousand, there's also like little things they do that cause people to either quit or other layoffs by eliminating positions that they don't technically consider part of the layoffs. So it's always more than the number they release, but Activision Blizzard brings in about 9,500 new staff members, and they just laid off about 10,000 staff members. And of course, uh, people noticed that the night of the layoffs, Microsoft hosted a Sting performance in Davos, you know, which is a super richy rich event to begin with to even get there. To even, to even attend Davos, it's like a $100,000 ticket. So they, you know, they lay off 10,000 people, and then they held a private intimate gathering of 50 or so people, including top executives at Microsoft who got a private performance by Sting while people were getting their layoff notices. Yeah. Tell me you're tone deaf without telling me you're tone deaf. That's this whole, this whole story is just, I I think it's just wild. This is, I don't know what they were thinking. I, I really, well, it's, it's bad. Honestly, it would have been better had they just either not done the layoffs, which of course you know that was never going to happen, but the, the optics of just the, the, the Davos trip, and then this super predatory uh, attempted acquisition of Activision, which now might not go through because the EU, like I, for once, I'm actually like, you know what, EU, you you guys do you go get it, because it, it it just seems so bloodless. It is. Um, up on the up on my screen right now, I have uh, I have charts that show that so before the layoff, Microsoft had built up a staffing of two hundred and twenty one thousand. To put that in perspective, they had one hundred and sixty three thousand in Q two of two thousand and twenty. So in two years, they added six, nearly sixty thousand new heads. In that same period of time, Meta, they added thirty one thousand new heads. Salesforce, for example, who's also been doing layoffs. They added 25,000. So nobody's added as many as Microsoft, but all these tech companies, we were, were running absolutely freaking hog wild with the free money and the, and the easy loans. Because when you're their size, you get essentially a zero interest loan. 
which is free money because that's lower than inflation. And they just hired, 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 like they did all kinds of things, including hiring. But here's the damage, Mike. 50, so they hired 50,000, Microsoft hired 50,000 people from Q2 2020 until Q2 2022. 50,000 people they hired. Those were jobs that could have been in a smaller tech company. That could have gone to hundreds of small tech companies. By centralizing everything for the last five or six to 10 years, really the last 10 years, by centralizing everything in the big tech companies, if a new technology wants to come to market, if a new ultra-wideband chip wants to come to market, if a new display tech wants to come to market, if a new web standard wants to come to market, if a new image format wants to come to market, if a new camera module wants to come to market, you get my drift? It all has to come through either Apple or one of the Android developers or Microsoft. You, you, you're essentially, your only path to the market was to get built up big enough for one of these companies to aqua hire you and integrate you and ship your product in their, in your device, in their device. That's where Apple's chip tech came from. That's where their modem tech came from. That's where the Siri tech came from. On and on and on. Same thing at Google and Microsoft. I mean, hell, Android was an acquisition. All of these could have been small businesses, but the architecture of the landscape enabled by the central reserve or the central banks, it is what it is. I'm not making a political statement. It just is what it is. The free money situation created these monsters. And now, now that the spigot's been turned off, these monsters are just cutting the herd with absolutely no concern. You saw that email we got, right? Here's another one that was on Twitter. After spending 20 years at Google, many employees were laid off. That's someone's entire life. The loyalty is just an absolute joke from these tech companies. And here's the lesson they learned. And I want everybody listening to internalize this because these people are going through hell. So you don't have to. A company is not your home and you are never part of a family when you work at a company. Stop glorifying companies and work culture. Work for money and move on. Here's another tweet that I thought hit home. After 16.5 years at Google, I have been let go via an automated account deactivation email at 3 a.m. this morning. I was one of the lucky 12,000. I don't have any other information. It was largely a wonderful 16 years, but this also drives home that work is not your life. And employers, especially big faceless ones like Google, see you as 100% disposable. Live life, not work. That's what these people are reflecting on. Eight years, 16 years, 20 years, and they're all saying the same thing. Work is not a family. You have to find stuff outside your work. They're all saying it loud and clear, and it's, it's a painful thing to read. Meanwhile, all these companies are wildly profitable. Yeah, right. With the possible exception of Spotify, right? So but the, the big boys, the gatekeepers, if you will, are – this is not a cut of necessity for the – you know for lose some percentage of staff to protect the rest this was and i've heard i read a great article it was uh was the guy from stanford i forgot who published it but that this is basically just a psychological contagion i would actually be a little spicier than that i think this is so i here's some bacon at the same time there's a lot of talk about getting back to the office right i think this is in a lot of ways these big shops are trying to well get people you know scare the scare those uppity tech workers a little bit i don't even know what to say it's it just seems so transparent because now oh geez at least i got to keep my job it's like they're trying to scare the gratefulness into them right right because trying to undo a lot of the changes that came from covid 
Yeah, the new privileges and, and worker gains that had come along. Yeah. It could be that. You know, it's it's for them, it's simple numbers too, right? It's sort of, it's an opportunity for them to kind of refine what the whole company is working on. Like, it's interesting to watch where they cut. I think there's something to that. Well, Microsoft, though, the HoloLens is basically just dead now. Yeah, yeah, possibly from what we, I mean, I, it's hard to know. You know, if, if you lay off 300 people from a division, but if it still has 500 people, then maybe you now just have the right number of people. It's hard to say, but the, the numbers are so insane. And, yeah, and then, of course, Amazon in the Echo division. You know, the thing is, too, Mike, and I don't I don't say this to Scaremonger, but um, it's not over. No. I think the a lot of the big ones the from the big companies are over. And I, I don't remember how long ago I said, but it was just a handful of episodes ago. I said, this is exactly what would happen is you'd have a few layoffs before the holidays. Then people would pause because they don't want to be monsters and do it right before Christmas generally. And then right after the New Year's, you get another round of layoffs because they want to get that into the 2023 books as quick as possible. They want the benefits from that because they also have to swallow all of these severance packages. So they want all of that headwinds cleared out by the end of the year. So it's like when they start doing layoffs now, they're preparing for a year out because or at least a few months because those those severances are a massive cost center. So it's a it's a calculation they make. So that's why they do it towards the beginning of the year. And these are the big ones. And like I said, like we both said, these big ones are the trendsetters. These top tech companies are if you look at it in terms of market cap in the in the stock exchange, like these are the big ones that set the trends for like all of the other smaller tech companies. And so they were going in hard and signaling that they're going for value this year with these layoffs. That is a that's messaging that is to investors. Part of these layoffs are messaging to investors. It's as cold as that is, it's true. And it tells us where they think the year is going. And um, I'm a little concerned that they're going in this hard, even though we knew we've been saying since August this was coming. I'm a little I'm a little grossed and shocked out, shocked even even though we knew it was coming, you know? Well, they, they, were, they just came out super hard. I mean, and they did it in ways where like, especially this is still happening at Amazon. People are still waiting. Yeah, they don't know. Like the layoffs are still ongoing and they don't know yet. And then they just get an email. Or in some cases, like you saw this all over Twitter. I think you saw this too, like uh, Google employees who didn't check their email before they showed up at work. Oof. They, you know, because they read their work email at work. They showed up and their badges just didn't open the doors anymore. Don't even let them come in and get their stuff off their desk, like their pictures of their kids and stuff. They'll just box it up and send it to you after they've gone through it all. Yeah, it's really bad. So uh, I liked this tweet. I'll link to these in the uh, in the notes. This gentleman writes, this is my third recession in tech, and here's my playbook. Number one, cut spending, put off vacations, auto and home purchases. Try to have 12 months of emergency savings. Number two, put in more effort at work to reach the top 25% of performance. In other words, become super valuable. And number three, learn more marketable skills with your extra time. I think that, you know, the, the message is, is like cut back and spending where you can. Make yourself more valuable at work if you can, where you can. Keep an eye on backup plans. Yeah, these are something, you know, uh, the stories keep rolling in. Something we have, we have like another, I think there's one more in the boost. We'll get to that in a little bit, but. Sorry for everybody that's been affected by yeah, this. It's, terrible. it's been on our minds all week. You know, it really has. It's we see these notes come in, and it's like, yeah, that's really impacting people's lives. So, uh, this is going to have this is going to have knock on effects, right? This is really uh, even if you don't work at one of these big tech companies for I would say the next year or two, this is going to be it's just going to change the landscape. I agree. I don't think we can know how, but I mean, if you were going to take a real early crack at trying to figure out where this is in a few years. 
how do you think this impacts developers in the job market? Like, is it, uh, is it better? Are there smaller businesses created and, and more opportunities, but maybe the pays less? I mean, maybe people will be happier, but maybe they have to take less money. I think we're going to see smaller businesses. I, it being created, which is good. You know, I, I, I think a lot of this is going to be, is just like a hard reset of getting rid of the perks, getting rid of the high pay. I'm a little surprised at how much, quote, get people back in, into the office action there is here. But, you know, with that said, you know, Microsoft and I think it's, who is it? Microsoft and Amazon are like giving up real estate in Seattle. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the kind of distributed model, the work from home model that's been so good for so many people in IT and tech, it's just too popular and too ingrained because of COVID now to really go away. You know what? It also feels like something that a small business could almost have to offer that large businesses can afford not because can afford not. they'll pay a premium yeah think about real estate costs and, and rental costs as a small business like you could avoid all of that if you just do remote work and a lot of the tech companies we know that have started up in the last year or so that are small companies do just 100 percent remote from the beginning yeah i think that's good i mean i don't you know i it's hard to look at this and just not see opportunism and I still question the wisdom that like things can always, you know, the stock price can always go up and to the right forever indefinitely. I'm not sure I would assert this, but I would pose the question. Is there such a thing as too big to be really viable anymore? Right. I think about these companies, they're basically so big that they have multiple large businesses inside of them. Think about Microsoft and Xbox and Office and Windows and Azure and, you know, and you could say the same thing about Amazon. You could say the same thing about even Apple, although less so Apple because they're weird. But, you know, if Apple was the Mac company and there was an iPhone company, those would be two very large companies. Even just making an iPod company. Yeah, or any of it, really. So it's it's kind of weird to me. Although if history repeats itself, this is going to be like the 2000s. Like, the thing we're not talking about, because it's kind of less flashy, is the effect on the startup ecosystems. And I'm pretty sure the days of dual-class voting shares are over. Man, you are right. Yeah. this is VCs are going to be back in the driver's seat, buddy. And uh, I kind of think maybe they should be. Some of this, you know, it, it, there's a lot of excesses that have been going on. It's gonna be weird it's it's you know the first crash everybody thought it was over and it wasn't and i'm not sure that this is over i i will say i'm shocked at the amount of uh let's just say 86ing the vr ar stuff seems to be getting in all these layoffs with the weird exception of apple who even even has scaled it back right they they're not going for glasses anymore and all of a sudden i feel like in the last 30 days every one of my podcasts that's even tangentially tech related is talking about 2023 as the year of the ai revolution like are, are we really just looking for like we just have to find the new thing that we can say grows and scales right is that that's what it is i do feel like part of the general tech culture is that constant growth constant innovation this industry is always changing the world from you know like the farmers lives are going to be improved to the doctor to the to the you know the person who can't see like they just always like the tech industry gets so caught up in this story of we're going to disrupt everything yeah 
it sells. Maybe that you know it's probably because it sells. It sells, and it's it's we you know we we've we, we've been harping on this for a long time, but they're always talking about their growth potential, not their actual like revenue or anything like that. Yeah. So, hey, the, you know the world is the way the world is. I don't know where does this leave us, but a little sad, right? It it definitely sucks. I mean, if the world can adjust to maybe slightly lower wages if the tech world can adjust to that and we could have more small businesses so the innovation's happening more distributed i think ultimately that could lead to a new boom cycle as some of those companies strike upon something that the market really likes and responds to what i believe though it's all it's all ultimately comes down to how long and how deep things go in terms of like bad economics right so if we're if we're in for 2 years of really bad economy, then I think things are fundamentally changed forever. If we are in for nine months, or if this right now is the worst of it, if we are at the bottom right now and things are about to start turning around throughout the rest of 2023, perhaps the Fed does a smaller rate hike next meeting or perhaps even pauses rate hikes in two months. No way. Oh, you think, huh? No way. No way to pause. Maybe smaller. Never. No way. No pause. Here's the wrinkle. You can look this up. They are changing the way they calculate the CPI for the next release. It's been in the works for a year. Ah, shenanigans. And so the CPI will be down again, and this time perhaps pretty notably. So I think the Fed will use that as justification for just doing a 25 basis point rate hike, and then they won't do a rate hike after that, potentially. We'll see. We'll see. If that changes, if that's what happens, then these tech companies are basically going to just hold the line right here and just keep their heads low. And then through 2023 and into 2024, things will pick back up. If the Fed continues with their current trajectory, which they should, because inflation's actually still very high, doesn't matter if you change the CPI, the actual cost of goods is still very high. If they if they maintain their course and we endure a longer period, then I think we could see a, a shift to more small businesses, more distribution of innovation and talent, but at lower pay. Well, the problem is going to be getting financing and credit for those small businesses is going to be not impossible. Yeah, that's true. It's going to be a lot of bootstrapping, a lot of JBs and mad botters, I think, right? <laughs> a lot of ice, a lot of, a lot of tokens, a lot, a lot of token tokens. sales. <laughs> George J tokens coming near you, George R. Binks. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the elephant and donkey in the room, of course, is we have an election coming up. And not that that would influence anybody's decisions, but, but you don't win an election with a failed crashing economy. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. Although the money printer goes, see, the problem is it's actually bad, right? Like the money printer is what got us here. It's like saying you're going through withdrawal. So let me get some more heroin. It's, it's just not a good idea because you're always going to need more. And I don't know. I'm, you know, it doesn't even seem to matter, Chris, right? Because fundamentally, the problem is it's not even the money printer, really. It's this expectation that these companies will always get bigger, always go up and to the right. And they're just so damn huge now that it it might not be realistic. Potentially. But, you know, if the numbers that ever – so if the if the CPI number is cooked and the unemployment number is cooked and the monetary supply is cooked and the market is – cooked by a couple of major significant whales and players like we saw when gme was going crazy we saw how the retail traders got completely shut out of that action but the people behind the scenes still made a ton of money then it doesn't really matter right because the if the baseline tool that you're using to measure is shifting along with you the entire way then there is no baseline and so therefore none of it 
it's all made up. It doesn't matter. I know this sounds very meta, but no, I think you just quoted Jim Carrey. The the points are made up, and it doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and it's a great way to support the show while you're checking out fast, reliable cloud hosting that's really built for developers. And I say that because there's a whole suite of tools that make building and deploying applications on Linode simple, quick, and stable. And they also have fantastic support and great documentation. And I don't just want to just mention that and move on. I want to say it again. They have the best support in the business. That's really an area they've invested in because they've been doing this for a long time and they realized this was an area they could differentiate. This is how they could stand out from those big, expensive hyperscalers that just want to lock you into their duopoly platforms, if you will. Maybe it's a triopoly. I don't know. It's a pretty brutal market over there. And, you know, the worst part is, is they're more expensive, they're more complicated, and they're slower than Linode. In fact, that's not just me saying that either. That's been independently verified by different outlets that do these kinds of things like cloud spectator. That's like their whole job is they go out there and they benchmark different cloud hosting providers. And this is a direct quote from their report quote in performance per dollar. Linode outperformed the next closest provider by 30% or more. We're talking NVMe block storage. We're talking NVMe local disks in the hosts. We're talking AMD Epic CPUs when you need them, GPUs when you need them. And there's also, of course, budget systems. You don't have to be a performance hound. Maybe you just want a standby site or a health check site or a blog or a portfolio for friends or family. Or maybe you just want like a gaming server for Minecraft or actually they have a lot of one-click deployment gaming servers too for some of the most popular games. So you don't even have to make an afternoon out of it. You just go up there, do a few clicks, and you got it up and going. I've been strongly encouraging everybody to just try out Mastodon too. I mean, if we're really going to get all in on this Mastodon thing, let's give it a go. Let's run it ourselves and see what it's like. And, you know, worst case, you'll learn something. Best case, you end up with your own unique identity in the Fediverse with your own domain name. And you're supporting the show, of course. Linode's got a great dashboard to help you manage the systems if you've been doing it for 25 years or you've never deployed a server. Linode's going to have just the right level of UI for you. And the way they do that is it's simple by design, and then after a few clicks down, you can get into the meat and potatoes and stuff if you really need to. And with 11 data centers today and another dozen coming online, they have resources near you, your customers, your clients, whatever it need be. And because they are their own ISP, even their internet connections are smoking fast, right? Like AWS can claim a lot of things, but I don't know if they can claim that they're their own ISP all around the world. <laughs> that's, that's something you got to get in really early. And Linode started before AWS was even a twinkle in old Jeffy's eye. They've been around, they've been doing it a long time, and they've been doing it right, surviving on the merits of the product. And that's why they're willing to give you 100 bucks to go try it and see if it's really worth using. And I think once you try it, you're going to like it, just based on the numbers. When a Coder Radio listener tries out Linode, they tend to love it. Getting that $100 helps. So go support the show and get the 100 bucks and try it out. Go learn something, go deploy something, go build something at linode.com slash coder. One more time to support the show. It's linode.com. Slash coder. You know, one of the champions of the fiat system. I know I sound like uh, I sound like some sort of uh, tinfoil hatter, but uh, it was just a setup for Elon. He has Elon has um, benefited very much from the last decade of monetary policy. That's all I'm saying. And I'm saying Elon himself is in a bit of trouble. I think he's got to get out of Twitter sooner than later. And I think the longer he stays there, the more is going to the more and more uh, different. I don't know regulation bodies are going to come after him. So the FTC tried and he told them to go pound dirt. I have a link to that in the show notes. 
And so your buddies over at the EU are picking up where their friends over here have failed. And uh, here's a little bit of a threat, I think. This sounds a bit of a threat. Essentially telling Elon that he better behave or else. This morning, this is a comment made by an EU commissioner. Oh, uh, our message was clear. We have the rules which, has to, which have to be complied with and otherwise there will be sanctions. We have the rules. You will comply or we will sanction you, is what she's saying to Elon in Twitter. All this shenanigans about free speech on Twitter and stuff like that, this needs to stop. You need to knock it off or we're going to sanction you. I think as long as that man's there, th- that, that platform is doomed. Mostly because of the hell he brings upon himself, too. I mean, I, I don't know. So you, you think if he just goes away, all of a sudden it'll be like, oh, never mind. All cool. Dude, you remember when everybody used to be talking about Blackwater and how Blackwater was over in Afghanistan and Iraq doing all these horrible things and about how they had a relationship with the Bush administration, Blackwater this, Blackwater that? You know that same company is around, they just renamed themselves, and now they're still getting paid billions of dollars in military contracts and doing private contracts here in the United States. They're still going. All right, Elon. They renamed to Academy, and now they've renamed to another thing, and they just keep on going. They are literally, they can murder people, dude, and they still just rename and keep on going. It's incredible. So, yeah, do I think Twitter could bounce back from Elon? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would take a little while. But well, I think- n- not Twitter, Chris. Not Twitter. Sparrow. Oh, yeah, there you go. So there you it. go. Yeah. You just rename yeah. it. That's it. You, you got it. You hit it in one. Just change the name. Yeah, that is, that is good. So we're done. Uh, yeah. However, Tesla may not be so savable, right? Like, that's a whole lifestyle well, brand. Tesla's got real competition now, too. Yeah. I mean... They are getting there, at least. The charging network is still so infantile compared to the Tesla charging system. And the software on the Teslas is still so many years better, especially like the nav and all that. But Think about a charging network on federal highways, all those beautiful, beautiful union jobs that could be created. One of my hobbies is I watch this YouTuber who goes around and all the, he has way, I don't know, I don't know. He must have mortgaged his house. I don't know how he did this, but he has like a Rivian, he has Teslas, he has the Volkswagens, you know, he's got all of them his whole it's his whole bit and he goes around trying out the new chargers and so a brand new super fancy fast charger went in part of a grant program uh, a little bit of federal money to put it in place and it's being run by the local utilities company so it's getting a direct hookup from the utilities company so everybody's so excited so they get they sign up in this app to get a push notification when it's available so this guy wakes up at 4 a.m by the way it's out of spec motoring if you want to check out the channel the guy wakes up at 4 a.m jumps in his car to go like his rivian or whatever it was to go try out the super fast charger because he's so excited because he's a big enthusiast. He gets there. It's in this dim back corner lot Ruh-roh. where like maybe they probably cleared out some dumpsters and junkies and they put these things in, you know, not near any lighting or any food or anything, no covers, anything like that. Uh, so he's got only the lighting of his headlights. 4 a.m. in the snow, he's there. And uh, he goes to charge it. And it asks he asks him to go download the app. He has like a dozen of these apps. He has to go get yet another app for the charging system. This is terrible. This is just bad. Yep. He logs in after he creates his account. It asks him to put the machine number in. He scans the QR code that's on the machine. That just launches a Google search for a series of numbers. Doesn't do anything in the app. Oh my God. So then it asks, so he's, oh, I can manually enter it. So he enters in machine one, hits go, turns on the machine next to him. Not the machine he's standing at, even though he's standing at machine one. It turns on machine two because they have them. They have them mislabeled in software. Yes. And he can't get it to cancel now. So then he has to get back in his vehicle, reposition and park over at the one that's turned on now. He hooks it up. It fails. 
So he starts it back up again, but now at least he knows the machine number. So he gets that part and he's already got the account. So he gets it going again. He hooks it up and it starts charging. Now, remember, big deal was this is the fast charger. It's supposed to be competing with the Tesla supercharger. And it's run by the utility company with a direct hookup, brand new hardware. It's such a big deal. People signed up for push notifications. This guy's out there at 4 a.m. He's trying it and he's only getting half the wattage he should be. Of course. At the current rate, it's going to take two hours. Oh, my God. In the cold to freeze his truck. And he's looking, what's going on? He thought, you know, he preconditioned the battery. Everything seems like it's right. Should be fine. And he, he's looking at the wire that's running back from, you know, the connector on the truck to the charging station. And he's looking at the wire. You can see the print on there. And he reads that the print on the, he reads the print on the wire. And it says that that cable is only rated for half the wattage that the machine is capable of producing. They installed the wrong cables on all of the machines. So they got the software wrong. They got the labels wrong. You got to get the app. You got to have your own account. And then when you finally get it hooked up, they put the wrong wire arm. And they're so these arms are so heavy that the retracting pulleys that they have on there can't even lift them back up. And they're still the wrong ones. So they, they have this super powerful supercharger there with the cables from previous model. And so it's limited to half charging. And it takes two hours to charge this guy's truck in the cold. Charger, where were you? Is this your fault? Misa, don't do it. I'm just saying, like, like you know, we give Tesla a lot of crap, but the supercharging system works. And it's reliable and it's integrated into the software. And that's where there's a big gap right now. It's a software gap. The hardware, you know, Ford's got a great couple of electric vehicles. A lot of them do now. My state has said no new uh, gas vehicles after 2025. So is California. We're going all in here in Washington. Uh, but the software is just crap because these companies have never known how to write good software. It's a 100% software story and it's, it is what it is, my friend. Well, they don't even have the right electrical cables to actually transmit the power, though. Yeah, they just don't. Yeah, that's true. It, I mean, it's 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 kind of just an incompetent story. <laughs> you might be right. Ask not what your podcast can boost for you, but what you can boost for your podcast. All right. Are you sitting down? Oh, God. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. We got some really great boosts this week. Um, our birthday, you know, our birthday boost came in this week. So we uh, we got a couple of those. And then we got a couple other just uh, big life event boosts. But our first top baller boost this week comes from Files Copying. Great to see him boosting back into the show. And he sends in for our birthday 500,000 sats. Baller. That is amazing. He says, here's the big boost for episode 500. Uh, that put us at number three on the Fountain FM charts for three days. So hello to new listeners who found us on the Fountain charts. You can thank Files Copying for putting us up there at the top. It's getting great. The price to get us at the top is going up and Files Copying did it. We also got uh, 50,000 sats from Anonymous congratulating us on the 50th, or I'm sorry, on the 500th episode of Coda Radio. Uh, I think Anonymous, you need to set your username in Podverse. I think it defaults to blank. So put that in there and send a follow-up boost and I'll credit you. And then Cospilan also came in with 5,000 sats to say happy 500. Neural LP came in with 4096 sats to say congrats on episode 500. I definitely noticed it and listened. Have always loved the show. Keep it up. Prozac came in with 2,000 sats. Happy 500. Woohoo. Woohoo. And all honesty, uh, I don't really like it either that somebody's going to own open AI, but at least Microsoft is the lesser evil versus, say, maybe Amazon, Google, or Facebook. I'd prefer having the core economy on, on pop shops. But we ain't going back to that. It's all about the big, huge companies, sadly. Uh, I think he means the mom and pop shops. Yeah, I think for now. Also, uh, we got a row of ducks from uh, 
Prozac, just saying happy 500. And then our uh, last birthday boost came in from El Ray, one of the core developers on the brand new Jupiter Broadcasting website, just recently on Office Hours, sent in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. He says, uh, I got a good laugh at, quote, no one showed up for our birthday. Happy 500, guys. And uh, congrats on your first 500 show for JB. Yay! Yeah, and I think I think we did the math, and I think I have to, I think I'm, I got to like be here until Coder 550, or r- roughly, for it to be 500 episodes for me, since Wes had about a 50-episode run mm. of the show. So, you know, I'm still putting in time. By the time it's 550, oh my God, that'd be, that's another year, just about. I know, man. We will be deep into this recession. <laughs> I don't know where I was I'm going trying, with this. I tried to bring it up. I'm trying to bring it up. I tell you what. All right. Well, uh, we got a, uh, we got now back to the, we now resume our regular boost programming. Uh, the, thank you everybody for the birthday wishes. Recap 85 came in with uh, 15,000 sats. Coming in hot with the boost. Uh, thank you, Mike and Chris, for your insights on the tech layoffs. It saved my marriage. My wife got laid off from Microsoft today, Oof. but she's ready to hit the job market with a polished resume thanks to Coder. All right. Well, I mean, I probably thanks to you, yeah. Recap, for having her listen to the show, and, and she made her own decision to do that, but I'm glad we could help a little bit. Uh, good to hear. Uh, Hannah getting boosted with 3,000 sats. Great show. I think Noster, or maybe it's Notster, will be the decentralized backend for many platforms going forward, especially for social media. Okay. We got to talk about Notester or Noster here for a second. Holy crap. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to nostr.com. I'll also drop it in the chat room right now so you guys can go see what I'm saying. They're essentially coming up with Telegram and essentially like other kind of websites. I don't know, Reddit, just different kinds of even games, just things that are centralized services. And they're basing it on the back end with Noster. And it's a decentralized network using key pairs. Uh, it's not peer to peer. It's kind of like a relay system, but it's extremely simple. It's an open protocol. There's no like Web3 token crap or anything like that. No like weird coin. It's just a cryptographic key pair system, which is totally transparent to you other than it's kind of you can see it in your user ID. And then they have like, I think one of the more compelling ones is essentially they've recreated Telegram. Um, they call it Amiga or an Amiga, A-N-I-G-M-A. So probably not that. But it is a chat app on using this decentralized Noster protocol. And I would love to learn more about this. So if anybody has deets, experience, anything that would help me learn more as I'm kind of going about doing my thing, please do send it in because I think there is some potential there. And I think what we're seeing with Twitter is it's going to be a dumpster fire regardless, because when Elon's in in control, one set is happy. And when a, a committee is in control, you know, that seem to be leaning progressive, a different set were happy or angry. And it's always going to be swayed by the leadership and the people and the staffing. It's always going to be a problem with the centralized platform. Very excited about it. Noster could solve it. Mirror Mortals podcast boosted in. Hello again with a row of ducks. Oh, yeah, I dropped Duolingo after the update as well. Probably for the best as I was just being lazy and not doing the upfront work I normally do to tailor it and make a learning system that will suit me better. I might have to experiment with chat, with this chat GPT if it's any good at explaining German or grammar translations. That's a great idea, Mirrors Mortal. If you do experiment with chat GPT for a little translating help, let us know how that goes. That sounds fascinating. And then I think uh, probably didn't have a username set, but user1805 rounds us out. Our last boost for the show. Thank you, everybody. The value for value really matters. First boost, love the show. 
Glad the trombones were still in the intro so I could maintain the imagery of you two playing along. I have to wonder if the show title contributed to the plane grounding event. Pilots do need their coder fix before the takeoff. Keep up the good work. Happy 500th episode, even if I am a bit late. Yeah, so, Mike, you probably recall um, right after last week's episode went out, the uh, FAA grounded all planes <laughs> in the United States. It's just something you casually do. Yeah, I mean, wild. We haven't done that since 9-11, and then Canada had to do something kind of similar. I don't think it was dramatic, but... And then they... they uh, they chopped it. They said it was a corrupted database file is what they said caused all that. You tell him not to run his route. They do it anyway. And I know. I know. Yeah. And then they go browse the web. Uh, thank you, everybody who boosts in. You know, the I don't know the state of the ad economy over the next year. And um, I think it's probably not great. And I could foresee a future where the shows that have the user support are the shows that continue. And that's through memberships. And that's through the boosts. And I really am grateful for everybody who gets that and participates in the system because we're not saying, you know, we're not saying go buy $10,000 of sats. We're saying go buy some spending sats, shoot them our way. And now that the cash app, the freaking cash app is on the lightning network, which is huge, just brought millions of more users on the lightning network. You can buy a few sats on the cash app and send them to your podcasting 2.0 wallet for fountain or whatever in seconds. It's so smooth. Open networks, baby. It's the way to go. Uh, and if you want to just boost from the podcast index website, you can just get the Albi extension, get Albi.com and boost in that way. And of course, you can become a member if you prefer that system. That is a monthly subscription. And you can go to coderqa.co for that and sign up to the show and get an ad free copy as a thank you. Or you can support all the shows at jupiter.party and get all the shows ad free. And uh, you also get the coderly report when that happens. Mr. Dominic, where should we send people, you know, this week? You want to maybe plug a little Gamer Radio Discord? Like, what you feeling? Yeah, go to the Gamer Radio Discord. I'll throw a link in the show notes. Uh, this Friday, we're doing another MTG Arena Brawl tournament. Chris's favorite Magic the Gathering format, of course. Ovs. Yeah, we have uh, a new episode comes out Sunday. One just came out yesterday. So there you go. Very nice. Wow, you are a working man. Well, of course, there's lots of great shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I just did a whole studio revamp. We covered that in Linux Unplugged this week. If you're interested, using a little Nix OS and some other tools. Actually, some tools that would be great just for workflow on your desk, too. It's pretty cool. It was a fun episode. Cool, man. It was real cool. We got some cool show notes over at coder.show slash 502 and some cool RSS feeds. If you want to subscribe and get the show weekly, we think you should. And we'd love to have you join us in our matrix, coder.show slash matrix. And we're live on Mondays over at jupiter.tube. Thanks for joining us. See you right back here next week.